0: Hello and welcome to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode is audio from a webinar entitled, Why We Defend China Against U.S. Attacks. The webinar was sponsored by Workers' World Party, which describes itself as supporting the struggles of all oppressed peoples. We start with moderator Sarah Flounders of the International Action Center, followed by Workers' World Party Managing Editor Monica Moorhead.
1: I'm Sarah Flounders, and I am the host of tonight's Workers' World webinar. I'm a contributing editor to Workers' World newspaper and part of the International Action Center and many anti-military efforts. We want to show concrete material to expose and combat U.S. war threats and escalating propaganda against the People's Republic of China. Every time the U.S. targets a country, it immediately whips up a racist campaign in the background to create a climate of fear, blanketing the news to silent opposition. Thousands of reports, it's relentless. Trump is doing this in the most vicious way, but Trump is not the first. In this country built on racism, slavery, genocide, it's a fabric of every political act and every war. Racism against Black people, all people of color, against migrants. We saw vicious anti-Muslim attacks used for the decades of U.S. wars in the Middle East and Central Asia, from Afghanistan to Iraq, Libya, Syria, Sudan, Somalia, and in U.S. support of Israel's war on the Palestinians. Muslims were labeled terrorists, rounded up, deported in mass, disappeared, jailed. We can't forget the tens of thousands of Japanese people were rounded into concentration camps in World War II, but not German or Italian people. That's racism in the U.S. And what about today and the COVID-19 pandemic that's hit harder in the United States due to a complete lack of preparation? We're in the midst of a total capitalist economic collapse, a real capitalist collapse. So, there's a U.S. failure to protect the population here or to contain the COVID virus, and it's being all diverted into a blame China campaign rather than learn from China and what it has done so successfully. Now, from the earliest days of Workers' World Party, we've been discussing the impact of the Chinese Revolution on the global class struggle. We evaluated China as one of the most Thoroughgoing revolutionary upheavals in history, and it impacted profoundly the class struggle in the US and worldwide. And the whole US ruling class was shocked in 1949 with the victory of the Red Army in China. It awakened a world movement across Asia and Africa against colonialism and Western domination, and it was a huge setback for imperialist plans. was a major question of the Cold War and the 1950s witch hunt in the U.S. Who lost China? That's how they posed it. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, the efforts to turn back this revolutionary surge for self-determination and sovereignty. And then in 1979, the U.S. capitalist class had a new hope that they could gain a foothold in China through the expanding capitalist market and overturn the huge accomplishment of the Chinese Revolution. But starting with a pivot to Asia, a military realignment under the Obama administration, it reflected a realization that U.S. imperialism's hopes of an overturn were an illusion. China had a strong central government, central planning, and had rapidly developed into the world's second largest economy was a historic accomplishment, not only to feed the entire population, but to lift 800 million people out of dire poverty and illiteracy. Today, U.S. rulers from liberals to conservatives, Democrats to Republicans, are united in attacking China and blaming each other for not being harsh or threatening enough. There was a unanimous vote in Congress for new sanctions against China, and we certainly face a dangerous situation today with two nuclear aircraft carrier battle groups, each with accompanying destroyers, frigates, nuclear subs, 70 aircraft, a B-1 supersonic bomber, enforcing freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. It's denounced by China as inciting a confrontation. The U.S. wants to return to the days when there were fleets of naval gunboats on the rivers of China, a 100 miles inland. That was the U.S. Navy in China before the revolution. The U.S. Navy was there to protect free trade and opium. It's staggering hypocrisy for the U.S. government to claim support of Muslims in Xinjiang when they have spent decades on wars and bombings and invasions and occupations against muslim people where they've built special jails to jail muslims from guantanamo to bagram so it's really an effort to rewrite history and it's all made all more dangerous by the global capitalist economic crash now like clockwork capitalism crashes there's a recession or a depression every 7 to 10 years for the last 300 years But this capitalist crash comes with a global pandemic of a new virus, the COVID-19 virus, and that changes everything. While China is building an increasingly coordinated economy based on planning and human needs, in the U.S., the center of world capitalism, there's decades spent in building the most fabulously expensive military machine in history and a huge repressive apparatus of police and prisons, it's an endless source of profit to the military industries. And yet here there's no infrastructure in public health, doesn't exist. A child born in Beijing today has a much longer life expectancy than a child born in Chicago or Washington, D.C. China's COVID fatalities are under 5,000 people, and it's 140,000 fatalities in the U.S., 3 million testing positive. Why? China used a scientific approach, testing, tracking, huge supplies of essential materials, and a social mobilization of the entire population. In the U.S., no public action, no social mobilization, no necessary materials in place, just complete incompetence and disarray. So, uh, resorting to blame China and raw anti-communism. And even worse, there's a use of the capitalist crash and the COVID global shutdown, not for cooperation, but to intensify sanctions, a weapon of shortages and economic crisis, and in a time when countries are the most vulnerable. But the more the U.S. imposes sanctions on countries, China has established trade and aid. Venezuela, Iran, Syria, Cuba, throughout Africa. It's impacting the entire world order from the way that U.S. imperialism wants to run things. Here, everything, everything, first, foremost, and always is, does it make a profit? So tonight, we say, It's not democracy in Hong Kong to finance, train, and organize disruptions, and it's not human rights to vote sanctions on China or 39 other targeted countries globally, a third of the world population. And it's not freedom of navigation or freedom of trade to bring aircraft carriers and missile batteries to surround China. Just like it's not about police in the U.S. being for protection of our communities, We have to tear down these racist myths. We hope to do that in this program because we need to build unity among all the forces that are challenging US corporate lies and threats. We may not agree on every point on the complex social development in China and even its class character, but I think we can all agree that US imperialism is not ever a force for liberation. Or for human progress. So it's really an honor to introduce our next speaker, Monica Moorhead, who is the editor, managing editor of Workers' World newspaper. She's been a commentator on many past uh, webinars here and really frames this
2: in a way I think that would be very helpful. So, Monica. Thank you, Sarah, and good evening, everyone. Tonight we are discussing U.S. imperialism's growing threats against people's China, a revolution that has changed world history. Imperialism's strategy from the first day was how to overturn this revolution. China has grown in its ability to not only feed its entire people and provide housing and healthcare and stability. It has developed enormously It is now a major world economic power. This accomplishment is a threat to the imperialist Western corporate rulers, especially here in the U.S. To understand the relationship between U.S. imperialism and China, one must understand imperialism as an economic system, not as a policy. One of the five basic features Vladimir Lenin laid out in his 1916 Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism book was completion of the territorial division of the whole world among the biggest capitalist powers. China was ruled with an iron fist as a colony by both Britain and Japan before its socialist revolution in 1949. Imperialism is capitalism at that stage of development at which the dominance of monopolies and finance capital is established. In the 1968 pamphlet, Expanding Empire, Workers' World Party founding member Vince Copeland states, and I quote, the investment of capital in a foreign country should be regarded somewhat like a, like sending a huge suction pump there, which pulls out the metals from the ground, the products from the soil, and the fruits from the trees, with the help, of course, of the labor of the quote-unquote Native people or workers working on this suction pump. It is as if the pump were connected to pipes that run back to the home or the capitalist country via the banks and big corporations. All the rich products are showered from the pipes into the treasuries of these institutions in the form of profits. Whole nations are drained by these great suction pumps or investments. And the profits are so great that rival groups of big business, led by small cliques of big banks, go to war with each other over the exploitation of these nations. Both Lenin and Copeland, over a span of 50 years, were describing the same imperialism as rich capitalist countries getting richer of the systemic underdevelopment of the oppressed nations that get poor through the debt crisis, war, sanctions, and occupation. There are oppressed nations within the U.S. of black, brown, and indigenous people who are disproportionately poor compared to the whites. Therefore, imperialism has created a war at home And abroad. This super exploitation is the economic basis for countries in Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, Asia, the Middle East, and oppressed nations at home having the right to sovereignty or self determination, that is, to determine on how best to develop their economies, societies, and communities to meet the basic and cultural needs of their population without the bullying interference of the corporate bosses and militarism. This is the basis upon upon which China must be defended against imperialism. The COVID-19 pandemic ripped off the band-aid of this cancerous monstrous system which has left billions more workers and oppressed people on a global scale so vulnerable to suffering and deaths due to a lack of health care, food, shelter, clean water, the right to a job or income and more, including right here in the belly of the beast. And hunger is predicted to take more lives during the pandemic on a global scale. And we must really be vigilant when it comes to the mass evictions that are to come in the millions by the end of next month. Now the whole world can see that the U.S. is incapable of protecting its own population. There is no public health system compared to China's huge public health system for more than a billion people. U.S. infrastructure is crumbling while corporate profits are soaring. Meanwhile, the U.S. has nothing to offer the people of the world except for terrorist threats and more suffering. These weaknesses make the U.S. more dangerous than at any time in its history because it is is a desperate, dying system in permanent crisis whose profits are based on militarism, and war. We are in the midst of a global capitalist economic crisis and a global health pandemic. Millions of angry youth of all nationalities are on the move challenging this white supremacist system, especially police brutality, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. It is a perfect storm U.S. rulers are united in wanting to turn this anger, this economic pain, and this fear of virus into a Blame China campaign, and we say no. Intensifying the class struggle inside the United States is the most effective method for socialists and revolutionaries here to show political solidarity for oppressed peoples and workers. Inside and outside these artificial borders, whose only so called crimes have been to fight for economic independence and political equality by any means necessary. And China is an example of fighting for its right to sovereignty and self determination. With no other options, countries have and more will turn towards socialist. Reconstruction, and equitable trade as the only answer to imperialist underdevelopment. Our solidarity and our determined opposition to U.S. sanctions and war threats, starting with China, can have a huge, tremendous impact. Build a worker's world. Thank you.
0: You are listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is audio from a webinar entitled Why We Defend China Against U.S. Attacks. The webinar was sponsored by Workers' World Party. We started with moderator Sarah Flounders, followed by Monica Moorhead. Next up is Hong Kong native Su-Hin Lee of the China-U.S. Solidarity Network and the National Immigrant Solidarity Network.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Su-Hin. Tara had talked a lot about what is this situation. I want to be a little more in-depth to talk about the whole pictures. Right now, what happened is not just a COVID. It's also need to see the broader picture, what happened between China and the U.S. and the global situations. Sarah said uh, we organized a, a delegations last October to go to China to witness the 70th anniversary of founding foundation of People's Republic of China, but also we organized another delegations on December to January to went to Silk Road to went to Xinjiang and I meet with many activists. We know something is going to happen. We know that's going to be a, have a high tensions between China and the U.S. That time still don't have COVID, but that has a several major escalations, include the so-called trade war, the U.S. involvement, COVID action, the so-called revolution in Hong Kong, my hometown. Also, the U.S. military naval ships has been sailing and close to the South China Sea and near the Chinese coast, as well as Huawei and all these so-called bogus China spy allegations in the U.S. So December last year was a very tense moment that all these things piling up against China. But China successfully fought most of them, that was the uh, end of the December when we were in in, in uh, Xinjiang. We were many people and talk about because we worry about that maybe US is going to launch something in China from maybe a protest to all these kind of political things because US has been pushing for several resolutions such as Uyghur human rights, Uyghur human rights act, pushing the Hong Kong uh, legislation, etc. At the end of the delegation, I would say uh, around January second or third this year, we start hearing the story about there's some kind of virus broke out in Wuhan. Then uh, people uh, start worrying about, and the government start warning everyone to be start preparing and uh, need to be uh, careful about uh, health and safety. And I was staying in China until January twentieth. When the situation getting worse and worse. But I also have an opportunity to witness what China has done to fight against the pandemic and mobilize the national population, not everyone to be involved in the so-called the people's war against the virus. So this is not a, simply speaking that uh, it's a, China can win the beat back the COVID within two months. is a luck. It's a really talking about a socialism under China's characteristics that able to mobilize national capacity to fight against the virus that no one heard about. That's also the reason why US failed because US has been obsessed against China, the China bashing, and then also the cold war against China. That's the reason why. That's, uh, uh, all this, uh, Trump is uh, so furious because he definitely lost. But on the same time that also been spreading all this, uh, uh, unfounded hoax about so-called uh, Wuhan military lab wireless. Because what is, you got to understand, this is not just talking about blaming China, the virus, but also it's one shoot. This is a whole thing is a one shoot. Contain and against China. The hopefully that this can be become as so. At the beginning, if you remember, people had uh, the right-wing Republicans or even some media have been calling this a China's Chernobyl. Hopefully, that will become a disaster, and that will be a national disaster that will be China cannot handle. And then at the end, people are angry, uprising, overthrowing the government. Then the U.S. can be victorious. Just like the mentality, what that time, but from Trump to right-wing Republican, it's just like a, a losing gambler, desperately looking for some way to turn the table back against China that can be victorious. That is upon top. That is a Cold War mentality. That is a racism. That's with any cost they want to against China. The success right now, U.S. the COVID has been completely dysfunctional, the dysfunctional and also has been failed. The next fight will be the uh, vaccine, the so-called vaccine. China under socialism, able to mobilize national effort to not just combat virus, but also to organize to to develop vaccines. Just to make it simple, they're saying right now, there's total 17 vaccines on the clinical trial. China already has in total nine compared with U.S. is four. So China is right now have several are very promising compared with U.S. but could be ready by next year. That's what exactly U.S. don't want to be seen. Why? That's very simple. Impulsion and capitalism. Impulsion, what that means? If China can develop a vaccine can be safely used, can be readily available. China already promised that the intellectual property will be free to every country. That means that China will be leading the way on fighting the virus, not the U.S. That's exactly what U.S. doesn't want to see besides the money the U.S. can make. And then they thought that this is the money supposed to be U.S. make, not other countries. So I appeal to everyone, this is not a uh, just a talking about it's only a virus fight, but also it's a struggle. International solidarity. Also international solidarity against U.S. imperialism from China to Africa to Middle East to Latin America everywhere that has been devastated. Tens, hundreds of millions, billions of people. If we can unite, we can win the struggle, not only COVID fight, but justice, social justice, and economic justice. What we saw on the Black Lives Matter movement, we have been, if we can unify, we, we can work together, we can uh, succeed, we can accomplish something. Right now, we are working with Sarah and uh, developing a book. We just talked about it two months ago. We should write a book about why China successfully fight the COVID, and why US failed? I hope that books and the discussions can enlighten people, learn something new that what we can learn from China, and then why is international solidarity is so important? Thank you.
0: You are listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is audio from a webinar entitled. Why We Defend China Against U.S. Attacks. The webinar was sponsored by Workers' World Party. We just heard from Hong Kong native Su Hin Li of the China-U.S. Solidarity Network and the National Immigrant Solidarity Network. Next up is Calvin Deutschbein, an activist with the International Action Center.
4: Hello and thank you. My name is Calvin Deutschbein with the International Action Center and I prefer they or any pronouns. I've been having conversations about COVID-19 and the U.S. and China responses with members of my family and my union, so I created a series of eight facts to talk through what I believe an effective response should be. Fact number one, the United States has more cases than anywhere in the world. On July 4th, 2020, there were 2.8 million confirmed U.S. cases, over 25% of the world's total of 11.1 million. Brazil, which has the next most confirmed cases, has only about half as many as the U.S. at 1.5 million. China has only 84,000, Iran, 240,000, and the entire European Union, including Britain, has about 1.5 million per the European Union Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Fact number two, the U.S. outbreak is growing faster than anywhere in the world. The U.S. has had the most daily cases anywhere in the world since early March, other than a brief period from when Brazil matched the U.S. And the growth rate continues to increase. As of July 4th, the U.S. had 132,000 deaths, 661 in the past 24 hours. China has only had 4,634 deaths total, with the most recent on May 16th. Fact number three. The US for profit healthcare system makes treatment inaccessible. The United States spends 17% of its GDP, or gross domestic product, on healthcare, over half again over the next highest nation, 11% in Switzerland. Yet only 84% of adults see a doctor in a given year, and drugs cost more than anywhere else in the world. The US has fewer hospital beds per person than 80% of other nations and closes hospitals faster than 80% of other nations, even while experiencing major population growth. Fact number four, the United States has refused international aid. Within 12 days of the discovery of the virus in Wuhan, Chinese researchers isolated its genetic material and shared it with the World Health Organization, or WHO, to develop diagnostic tests that were available weeks before the first U.S. deaths. The U.S. did not collaborate with the Chinese or WHO researchers, leading to its own outbreak when U.S. developed tests failed. Fact number five, the United States failed to deploy disease control measures. The U.S. response never slowed the viral spread to half of its highest rate. And the U.S. reopened while having the most cases in the world and a faster viral spread than anywhere else in the world. In contrast, the Chinese response, especially in the city of Wuhan, sustained a lockdown of 57 million people until there were no new daily cases. Fact number six. In the U.S., responses focused on economic profits rather than human lives. The U.S. has spent trillions of dollars on Wall Street and the Pentagon instead of providing healthcare, housing, or food, and has only offered a single one-time cash payment to the people. The United States has no universal healthcare, no guaranteed housing, no guaranteed food security, and no guaranteed higher educations programs, despite having arguably the highest wealth of any nation in the world in history. Fact number seven, effective responses center human needs. In contrast to the United States, China, which is still in many important ways a developing nation, has safely implemented ambitious containment programs based on collective and communal programs in healthcare food stability, and education that were won by the Chinese people in their 1949 communist revolution. Fact number eight, the U S has turned to militarism over health. Since the outbreak, especially in the U S the United States has stoked xenophobic attacks against Chinese people has falsely blamed China for spreading the virus even when many U.S. cases were introduced by way of Europe. And many of the first U.S. cases were introduced by U.S. citizens being pulled out of Chinese mandated quarantine by their own federal government. The U.S. has aggressively placed two nuclear aircraft carrier battle groups in the South China Sea disputed area on the southern part of China leaked false intelligence reports from its national intelligence services, claiming the virus was developed as a biological weapon and generally adopted a posture of war with China, especially rather than one of peace, international collaboration, and the interests of the health of its own people. Here at the International Action Center, we have a lot of resources to talk through this, to learn more about this. The talk that I just given is available as both a slide deck and a fact sheet on IACenter.org. And we have some other resources that might be interesting and valuable to you. Most recently, we had a fact sheet also about the U.S. interactions with Hong Kong during the Hong Kong protests. And that's all available again at IACenter.org. So please come check us out. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Calvin. It does show it's so important to just provide the concrete facts and a context. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Sherat Lin. Dr. Sherat Lin is with the San Jose Peace and Justice Center. As a researcher, he writes and lectures on global political economy, labor, migration, Middle East, South Asia, and public health. He's been studying firsthand the historic transformation of China from the cultural revolution to the present. So, uh, Dr. Lin, please join us.
5: Thank you to the, uh, to the Workers' World Party and International Action Center for, for inviting me to this uh, webinar. I want to, first of all, frame why the United States is, is taking this very increasingly aggressive approach towards China and I think that some of the other speakers have already have already uh you know touched on this. And US capital is is facing a challenge from the the Chinese economy and, and the fact that, that China has seen an amazing growth rate, an amazing uh development of its own internal infrastructure, and has become you know the by far the, the leading uh, exporter of of industrial goods to the rest of the world uh sometimes called the factory of the china is the factory of the world and that in the in the long run of course you know threatens u.s supremacy and the, the united states is a leader only in in the military in the sense that the united states still spends nearly 50 percent of all dollars in the world on 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 the military uh, meanwhile the the chinese economy Right now it stands at about 15 trillion dollars in GDP versus the U.S. at about 22. And if you look at it in, in actual purchasing power parity terms, the Chinese economy is actually the world's largest economy. So that, that has long-term implications in terms of the ability of, of China to weather conflict between, the, between the China and the U.S in terms of being able to provide an alternative center of power uh, in the world. On top of that, this conflict between US capital and and the rising China is the fact that we have a president right now who is reversing the globalization. Whatever you think of globalization, the point is that that Mr. Trump is exercising a lot of ultra-nationalist rhetoric and actions in terms of pulling out of treaties, imposing sanctions and doing all of these, these kinds of, uh, of aggressive moves th- that are extra economic in the sense that they are, they are not market-driven measures. And he's doing that because of the failure of the United States to combat the COVID-19, failure to you know, maintain its industrial base, failure of the U.S. to have a national health care system housing for everyone and so on. And so the way is to is to scapegoat another country and certainly that included in that would be the world's rising power. And if you look at at China, I have a more nuanced picture of of China because it is while it does have a a socialist oriented government, it is also, you know, sixty percent of the economy is is essentially capitalist. And uh, and that and that sector continues to grow, but China, for example, does still have, for example, right now it has a it has made a national commitment to reduce poverty to zero. I mean, of course, they have a certain definition, and many people would would dispute that definition. But the point is, there is a national program which is targeted to to finish by the end of this year, and according to their definition, to reduce poverty in the country to zero by the end of, of this year. The US uses all kinds of, of means to demonize other countries, and one of them is human rights. So every year, the, the State Department produces a report to the president on human rights. And the, the White House basically uses that selectively to target countries. I mean, the, the, there's a section there on Saudi Arabia, but this, the administration never raises the points about human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia they do in, in china I, I was just in in Xinjiang, and and i had a, f- a first-hand chance to to see what is really going on there and i see that you know it's not a question of a repression yes there's a there's a heavy police presence the actual number of new imprisonments which is in response to a very very tangible terrorist threat that you know is a lot of the, the Uyghur fighters have been, uh, have been found in, in Syria fighting with the jihadis. And the actual number, according to, to China's own official incarceration figures, they have risen over the past five to seven years by a factor of about 200,000 in Xinjiang. It's an extraordinary number, but it's not the one million or two million that is sometimes cited by U.S. government figures or by the media without any documentation of, of how they get the, those kind of figures. So the human rights issue is, is used very selectively when the US wants to, to target another country or attack another country. The Huawei case, Huawei is, is China's leading telecom and mobile phone manufacturer. And um, it's been targeted because of its being a Chinese company that it will compromise security. of. Uh, of uh, telecoms, in you know wherever Huawei equipment is 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 used. Now, no one's ever proven that, but you know one has to be reminded that that every U.S. manufacturer is required, and some, and there is resistance, but they're required to build a backdoor for the FBI to spy through U.S. equipment. So it's it's not really any different with the U.S., and I don't think that that Huawei is any different. Because Huawei is not a state-owned company; it's actually it's actually owned by the employees, at least officially. A lot of this, this bashing is, is artificial. China is not perfect. It's, it's not an ideal uh, socialist country. But a lot of this bashing is, is because of imperialism's own failure and its uh, desperate attempts to remain the sole superpower in the world, a position from which... It, it can dominate and, and, and impose its will on the rest of the world. Thank you.
0: You are listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is audio from a webinar entitled Why We Defend China Against U.S. Attacks. The webinar was sponsored by Workers' World Party. We just heard from Dr. Sherat Lin of the San Jose Peace and Justice Center. Next up is Dave Welsh, a retired postal worker, and a delegate to the San Francisco Labor Council. He'll talk about a resolution he recently introduced to the council. After Dave Welsh, we'll hear final remarks from Sue hinley and Sarah Flounders.
6: We have a meeting uh, once a month of the Labor Council, and the delegates from the different unions represented by the Labor Council come together, 75 participants from the different unions, and uh, I was there representing the letter carriers, the people who deliver your mail, and we discussed the issue of the attacks on China being launched by the president of the United States, Mr. Trump, and supported to some degree, to quite a degree, by the Democrats. I mean the uh, the, the Congress, the Democrats, as well as the Republicans, voted to heighten sanctions against China. This is crazy. I mean, this is an interdependent world where how another economy develops affects our country and affects our workers and affects our consumers. Let me talk a little bit about the resolution. The resolution says that the so-called Pivot to Asia Act of of two thousand eleven was in fact a pivot toward war and confrontation that identified China as a competitor and an adversary, carrying with it the threat, the U.S. threat of nuclear war against China. And then the resolution goes on to say this dangerous policy has created palpable feelings of fear, animosity, and even hatred, not only towards the People's Republic of China, but towards Chinese people in general and Chinese American citizens and other Asian peoples in the United States. And you know, that means we have to go back to uh, the Second World War when the United States and Japan uh, were at war in the, in the Pacific theater. And uh, uh, the United States rounded up Japanese Americans in the continental United States and put them in concentration camp for the duration of the war. I mean, this was outrageous. Basically the, the Japanese American Citizens had their land stolen, they were deprived of livelihood, and they were cooped up with their families in these uh, barbed wire camps. Well, right now, you see a resurgence of this kind of thing against Chinese Americans as people try to scapegoat China for the COVID outbreak. Now, China has had something like 4,500, the United States has had hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID. So China moved rapidly to limit the damage and to stop the spread of the virus. The United States has not done so. Now, one of the reasons for that could be that China has a socialist system and they can mobilize to protect the people from a real danger to their health and livelihoods. And they did it. They used the power of the uh, government of China to isolate the virus and to protect people so it would stop spreading. That's what we need to do. Now, the resolution goes on to say that the dangerous policy started with the pivot to Asia of 2011 has created palpable feelings of fear, animosity, and even hatred toward the People's Republic of China and towards Chinese people in general, and others of Asian descent in the United States. The resolution goes on to say that humanity now faces multiple crises that threaten the well-being and very survival of our species. Crises which demand the cooperation of the two largest and most powerful countries, China and the United States. Now, why is it that when the United States starts to have a serious economic crisis. First reaction of the political leadership of the two major parties seems to be to prepare for war. This is not a rational way of dealing with things. We need cooperation. We need peace to deal with this issue like the the COVID epidemic. Uh, anyway, the, the Labor Council, you know, I say San Francisco Labor Council, everybody may not know exactly what a Labor Council is, maybe four or five delegates from my branch that uh, represents the letter carriers that deliver the mail. And uh, we go there and, and we meet once a month in the uh, Plumbers Hall in San Francisco and discuss these issues that affect organized labor in the United States. And the San Francisco Labor Council has taken the lead on many issues, like arguing against the Iraq war the war against Iraq arguing against uh, the preparations for war against Iran and the, the labor council has taken positions counter to that has said wait a minute now who's going to be fighting those wars the workers of the united states our members and their children are going to be the ones fighting this war and so therefore we have to oppose it this is a labor issue if you're going to be sending my son and my daughter off to someplace thousands of miles from where we live to fight a war with some other country. This is not rational. This does not make any sense. And I think of eventually, I think we can prevail. So the, the resolution concluded that urging the government of the United States to reject escalation towards global conflict and instead pursue peace non-intervention, and cooperation with China and the rest of the world. You know that the working class that I'm part of, we don't want to go to war. We don't want to go and subject our bodies, the bodies of our children, our neighbors, to these terrible, I mean, a lot of veterans are, are in our labor council. People who survived these vicious wars and came back, maybe not all in one piece, but with most of their pieces still intact. So I think the Labor Council, speaking for organized labor, but also for the unorganized part of the working class, which is the larger part, uh, say, look, we don't need this war. We don't need to be sending two different battle groups of aircraft carriers and offensive weapons, including nuclear armed weapons, into the South China Sea. How would we feel if China or some other country came and uh, up and down the coast of California, up and down the coast of uh, the East Coast, the Carolinas or New York, brought in weapons of, of, of war, meth- weapons of mass destruction. This is not something that we need. We need peace in order to develop, uh, to develop in a, in a way that's going to benefit our children, our neighbors, our friends and loved ones. And I, I think this is a totally unnecessary, but, you know, it flows from the way the capital system is organized, and especially the United States, which is doing not so well economically. They're not doing so well. This COVID-19 epidemic has greatly hurt the ability of the United States economy to, uh, to produce what it needs and to employ people. You know the millions of people who've been thrown onto the rolls of unemployed and who have been laid off from their jobs, and it hasn't even begun yet. This is something very serious, and we need the cooperation of the government of China and many other countries around the world. We don't need to be hostile. We should be friendly with the world. That's what people want. People want to be able to bring their families up and develop themselves and develop uh, the the uh, cultural life of the country in peace. Is that so hard? I mean that's what we need. We need peace so we can all get along. That's what we need. That's why we need to have some socialism. Because uh, this system we've got now is such a warlike system and when it gets in trouble it starts building the bombs. That's what's happening. And uh, the San Francisco Labor Council is, I believe, to my best of my knowledge, is the first labor organization to come out against the building war against China and other countries. And the, the resolution says it all when it says we need a pivot to peace with China and the world. Thank you.
3: Someone was asking about, should uh, U.S. activists support the Hong Kong Independent Union? Uh, I'm from Hong Kong. Uh, I am born in Hong Kong. I was uh, in the labor movement in Hong Kong for close to 40 years. So uh, I know most of the labor organizers in Hong Kong. So I can say something very specific. There's a big union in Hong Kong that represent majority of the workers is called the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. That is a left-wing progressive pro-China labor union just like uh, AFL-CIO is umbrella of many unions in China, in Hong Kong, from uh, at different sectors. However, that is the one, that's the one U.S. does not support. U.S. does not, U.S. is putting all the resources against. Just, and uh, during the Hong Kong war, still the British colony, between, before 1997, the British Hong Kong colonial government has been against the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. That's the the coronists, right-wing, the right wing, right wingers, the anti communists in Hong Kong, they created the another uh, union. It's, it's specifically to, against the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. Another one is called Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions. Because the name is so close, people sometimes could be really confused. They both have uh, uh, uh unions and tra- uh, uh, federation, all these things. But Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions are not the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions are the right-wing, anti-communist, anti-China, and support by the U.S., and they are the ones who call, U.S. is called it an independent union, because under the umbrella, they create many proxy unions, uh, branch unions, and to, uh, directly to in, against the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. So that just to make it simple speaking, it's a left-wing unions and right wing unions, and right wing unions are the ones who supported by the US and then endorsed and pressed by the AFL CIO, specifically the Solidarity Center, who has been funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. That is also the Cold War arm, and then also the one who have been involved in the uh the car uh, revolution, exactly what have been happened in the Venezuela the fake so-called the trade unions against the Maduro's governments that is the same thing if you want to make it simple to understand so if I'm specific more specific upfront to say there's no such thing as an independent union independent union in many countries because it already has a union and then they said that independent union usually is the one who backed by a Western country funded by CIA. Or funded by the National Endowment for Democracy to against uh, already had the union, which had the more progressive, more revolutionary, more grassroots. The one more thing I need to also need to say the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions, the right wing, has been the main source behind the Hong Kong anti government riots last year. They're the one who had been the the one who behind the mobilized and then all this kind of uh, logistics support and then funding money from US to Hong Kong to against the Hong Kong provisional government and also against the left wing Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. So that kind of things we got to understand. And then I encourage anyone if they say some things that independent union, you got to be very careful. There's no such thing as called as independent unions. In many countries, and then if specific what U.S. said, what New York Times said, you've got to be cautious. What Solidarity Center said, you've got to be careful about that.
1: Two unions, the Federation in Hong Kong and the Confederation, which was set up really to counter and is tied to U.S. money, the National Endowment for Democracy, which has nothing to do with democracy. And it's the same thing in Xinjiang. I think very important to look at. Uh, The U.S. spent four decades, that's not a short period of time, two generations, recruiting mercenaries um, in the most isolated and least developed part of China, in Xinjiang, which is now a crucial part in the Belt and Road program, but recruiting Uyghur mercenaries at very high pay into the war right next door in Afghanistan. And this was a U.S.-Saudi Arabia project. The Uyghurs actively recruited. There were 100,000 Uyghur mercenaries in Syria who fought with ISIS. That's not a small number. So this is a long-term project that went on to try to build a separatist movement to pay for it. And the support for this movement is really based in Washington, D.C. And there's a lot of information I could point to on workers.org, but I'd also suggest you check out Zone that has covered this extensively. I want to next encourage you to join Workers' World if you want to be in the struggle. It's a good source of information, and we link to other groups all the time whose work is, we think, uh, important and in line with uh, what we're doing.
0: You've been listening to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode was audio from a webinar entitled, Why We Defend China Against U.S. Attacks. The webinar was sponsored by Workers' World Party, which can be found online at workers.org. You can find Essential Dissent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via radio That's radio, the number four, all.net. Thanks for listening.